0: Suckin' on my titties like you want me, callin' me all the time. I've got and they and that's fine if the teachers and peaches. Bow, bow. Fuck the pain away. Fuck the pain away. Sucking on my pennies and I wantin' me, callin' me all the time. i Did they do it? Did they impeach him? Did they do the impeachment? Do they hold him accountable? That's what really matters. I watched some of it. I watched the speeches. One, real uggos in Congress. Some of the ugliest people I've ever seen in my life. A couple of cuties, but by and large, beasts, hideous, just freaks. Uh, Also, just the stupidest fucking dullards. Just absolute both sides, mouth agape, losers just dumbasses like half of those guys look like panicky they sounded like panicky uh auctioneers uh, uh or like they were they were they recited their speech in front of the mirror for 50 for an hour beforehand and like were practicing all their stupid hand gestures pathetic They're losers folks the losers but beyond that one thing i did get is that accountability must be uh Must be attained. We have to have accountability. The president must be held accountable. But of course, the grim comedy of that is that the job description of the president is that they are not accountable. If people who reach that level of power, and that level of criminality, which go together, are accountable to the system, then why would anybody who makes up its... Sinews uh, take the job, and they need these people. They need the faces. So that president can't be held, held accountable. The very notion is absurd. The very notion it's it, it's like holding a, it's like holding a, a hurricane accountable. Can't do it. The title is a peaches reference. Yes, remember those? Remember her from the Bush era? But apparently, whatever they vote, and I guess they're probably going to do party lines. It's like four Republicans voting for, so it's going to pass. And then it will be taken up, I think, in the Senate by McConnell, like an hour before the inaugural. So they might on. Um, I'm wondering. They probably won't do it at that point. Like they're wait- They're essentially waiting, like for the thing to uh, calm down. One thing I will say that I feel like. I'm being vindicated on for everyone who says, "Uh, you don't know what you're talking about, you've been wrong about everything, is that they've already said that there's going to be 20,000 troops in uh, D.C. for the inaugural. They're bedded out. They're bunked up in the fucking capital right now. So they're, they're going to be polite but firm. You had your little tantrum. Now how do you feel? Bad? Still? Well, at this point, it's tough shift tough shit. We really cannot afford to de-indulge in you anymore. Sorry. But of course, that doesn't mean the end of stochastic violence. It'll only be the beginning. And at every level, as I have said and will say, it will be encouraged by the state security apparatus. And what fighting fascism will mean will be backing the Biden administration as they extend the war on terror domestically. That's it. That's all that will happen. Like, this impeachment thing, you can argue all day about why it's necessary, but who is this convincing? You know, if it's about isolating the Trumpist uh, rump from regular Americans who care about the country, shouldn't there be something for them to care about? And it's kind of amazing seeing people who have sort of laid in the cut uh, when asked to do stuff about uh, you know, progressive... Actual, you know, policy ideas. Deciding that now is the time for symbolic action. And that this is symbolically important. I mean, I think symbolic stuff is jack-off all over the place. It's all jack-off. Oh, it's going to let people know. They're going to see. Who's going to see? The same fucking web-addle dipshits who are already all allied. All on their own side. All have decided that, uh, you know, posting is praxis on both sides. Or have decided that... If, if they're on the QAnon side, they're, they're going to bum-rush state capitals because they have the fucking uh, the, the fear of God and the love of God in them that we, none of us have, even if it's delusional and it's based on just watching too much TV. But it's, it's a real motivator. Nobody on the left, left, like that's even a thing, has a motivation. Democratic voters are, by and large, absolutely cowering and holding uh, the hems of everybody, every Democrat, because they're terrified of being... Uh, of the the Republican mob being let loose on them. And so since there's no left, like symbolic actions don't mean anything. But it is interesting that people will say, symbolic actions, Where are you wasting your time on this stupid stuff with Medicare for All? And then say that this impeachment, this is a symbolism that matters. So the thing that might, I don't know, drain the swamp a little bit by giving people an idea that there is something else the government can do other than punish people? Now, that can go on the back burner. Uh, holding the president accountable and reminding people about the the fascist menace—that that needs to be a priority. It's it's all very it's kind of it's all going in a way that is very easy to see. You know, I mean, if you can see this turning into this anti-fascism now, this popular front that we're supposed to have with the Democrats, if you can see that creating anything other than like Patriot Act uh, 2, you know, Patriot Act 2 Electric Boogaloo, literally, because it'll be about the Boogaloo Boys this time, then I don't know what to tell you because there's no other forces at play. There's nobody in those rooms other than Democrats. And whatever the specific desires of any members of that caucus are, they're overwhelmed by the structural incentives of the party itself and the people who run it. And they kept talking about Liz Cheney as the good Republican. One of the most bloodthirsty neocons there are, the daughter of a dynasty of blood. I mean, caring about... I get why people want their feelings to be validated, because that's why they go online, to get their feelings validated. And they even get it in their head that, like, sticking up for the validity of the feelings of members of Congress is somehow an important thing to do. Because it, what, it establishes the stakes... It establishes how dangerous the moment is, as if our anxieties do anything for us but paralyze us. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that Kit car. I know people are being mean to me on Twitter, but they're all losers. I pay them no mind. And I certainly am not accepting any, uh, any insults of my appearance because I know that I'm looking uh, fresh to death lately. I know, it's all, it's all coming together. And yes, as many have noticed, my skin is dewy soft. So, enough of that bullshit. Let's get here. Let's talk about what's really interesting. What we're all here for. The Republic for which it stands, baby. The biggest chunk we've read yet. The second half of the second part. When the shit really hits the fan. When we get the great upheaval of eighteen eighty five we get the uh, we get the Haymarket, we get a homestead strike. Uh, and we have what is, in my mind, my favorite part of the book so far. and I've enjoyed the book a great deal. Uh, one of my favorite parts, my favorite part so far has been a part where white uh, carries out a examination of the political economy of the western cattle uh uh cattle drive and that makes sense since white's area of specialization is actually western expansion he's written books about uh the uh, the the establishment of you know markets and, and political entities in the west and a movie a book about the railroads so this is his wheelhouse and so talking about the cattle very very interesting Uh, and in fact, let's start just talking. I want to read a little bit from, uh, uh, am I back on? Somebody call my phone. I guess you're supposed to stop it, but I don't know how. Am I back? Oh my God, am I gone? I'm back. Okay, good sorry, somebody called my phone. Uh, so let's start talking about uh, the stuff that's in the, the first chapter we read, Dying for Progress, which is all boils down to an, uh, a statistic that White points out, which is that throughout the 19th century, a time of America's rapid expansion, its economic, its economy exploded over the course of the 19th century. The average American Got shorter and not, and this is screening out recent immigrants from, you know, the benighted uh, bogs of Ireland or the shtetls of Eastern Europe. Native born Americans, over the course of the 19th century, got shorter, lived less, uh, and lived uh, and had shorter life expectancies, and got frailer and got weaker. They literally got less healthy. They couldn't, they weren't thriving because industrial democracy, industrial, uh, industrial capitalism was literally squeezing the life out of them and filling them with adulterants and, and uh, gimcracks and and uh, tainted meat and, and rotten uh, flour. Uh, and the food is terrible in such small portions, basically. So the whole rest of the half that we read is sort of reckoning with, it's, it's about the country reckoning and, speci- with, and the liberal elite reckoning with the fact that the smallholder democracy that had appar- supposedly triumphed after the Civil War, the, the, the land of freedom of contract and individual liberty uh, and free labor, where, where the scourge of slavery had been removed, was not creating the prosperity, the broad prosperity it was supposed to. It wasn't recreating Lincoln's Springfield, which... Uh, White points out in the beginning of the book is the model of like Republican uh, n- uh, political economy. Uh, a small town surrounded by industrious farmers, uh, people, professionals, laborers, uh, yeomen, none of them terribly poor, very few of them very rich, uh, many of them moving from one field to another, most of them ending up with a home and property. That was the idea. And by the the 1880s and 90s, you had uh, a south where uh, slavery had been reinstituted under another another name and the economy had completely stagnated. You had uh, the eastern cities that were filled with, uh, just stockpiled with wretchedly poor uh, immigrants. Uh, You had everywhere that industrial capitalism was being consolidated, in the railroads and in steel, you saw uh, massive numbers of injuries and deaths. Uh, and terrible working conditions for people of all ages. And even those farmers who had been given the land after, with the Homestead Act and all that came after it were uh, in many places struggling, especially in the West where, unbeknownst to a lot of people, when they started moving uh, people out there, oh no, once you get past the 100th uh, meridian, uh, it basically dries up and there's no water and the agriculture that we assumed was going to be the basis of this economy is not really possible. And so you end up with this uh, economy of you know, Ponzi scheme, railroad Ponzi schemes propping up real estate speculations that usually ended up with people going broke because you can't fucking grow out there. So one way or another, it's not going the way it's supposed to. And we talked about how the liberals kind of made their transformation. We're in the process of making their Kuhnian transition from, from uh, mid-century laissez-faire nostrums to a uh, a more interventionist model, and I want to actually go to the very end of the last chapter of part two, uh, and read a little bit here to, to uh, bring us back to where we were last time, talking about the sort of cri- the, the the ideological crisis at the heart of like the liberal elite who became the administrators of the, administra- the administrators of the bureaucratic state in the 20th century, and also the people who made up its media class, its intellectual class, and its political class, and who had instituted after the Civil War a, a, a easy peace on the South with the promise of prosperity for all, smoothing over um, all social conflicts. Well, wouldn't you know it, the opposite happened. Everybody's shrinking. Forgot they're fucking shrinking. Oh my god. That's not great. So, uh, I just want to read this little bit about at the end about how the economists who had gone from you know, being, you know, classical Ricardo Adam Smithians, uh, to involving, to absorbing like uh, German ideas and then finally the, the marginal revolution, uh, of, um, that would end up shaping the response of the bureaucratic state to, to democracy. Uh, academics, here we go. Most academic social scientists held back as labor and vanguard anti-monopolists pressed forward in the 1890s, urging on cooperativist and state-based solutions to the long economic and social crisis. The academics, by and large, were not willing to join the assault, but neither were they willing to accept a set of liberal doctrines and social arrangements that they had spent their careers in overthrowing. Instead, they fashioned a new position, which emphasized consumption over production, corporations and large-scale production over competition, and bureaucratic expertise over democratic control. It was a position that some of the older liberals, whom anti-monopolists had opposed, could also embrace. It jettisoned laissez-faire, reduced the scope of individualism, and abandoned small government, but it left private property, capitalism, natural rights, and elite rule within a restricted democratic framework intact. So that... Is a perfect little capsule description of liberalism as we have understood it since the Progressive Era, which was that class of people coming to terms with the failures of uh, contract freedom to generate the country that they wanted it to. But the basic premise was because these were people in the property or near property classes who were around the finance capital, who were not, who were invested in the maintenance of capitalism. The assumption is all, that, all those Marxist notions, all those socialist ideas that, oh, the real root of this is a class conflict, that we cannot resolve democratically the difference between someone who wants to work as little for as much money as possible and someone who wants them to work for as long for as little money as possible. That, that is a conflict that can only be decided by force. And in a capitalist system, no matter what we tell you about democracy, that force is monopolized by capital. And they didn't want to change that, but they did want to keep it, if not more humane, more stable, because this is the aftermath of, as we talk about, the 1885 upheaval, which saw the largest, um, almost like spontaneous eruption of strikes across the country, uh, caused by uh, the, the Knights of Labor basically getting in over their head because as happened with all of the big labor eruptions in america and most other places honestly they were out of the hands of the formal organizations that they came from the types of labor did not want a full-scale confrontation with the state at that point they were they were still very uh they were still new and they were still unsure of themselves and they were still very cowed by capital and but they were in the middle of this extended economic depression, which all of the employers were using as an excuse to, even if they weren't suffering, uh, their profit suffering, to reduce wages and control over work. And so, how do we how do we deal with this? Well, we get rid of some of this laissez-faire bullshit. We regulate the trusts. We distribute some of the 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 uh, profits publicly but we keep the structure intact and that has been the model for liberalism ever since and in the section we read that there are two great examples of how liberal reformist instincts operate in this context where there are people who are embedded in capitalist relations find self-conscious uh identification with capital over labor but also have uh this the sort of sophisticated social uh self-conception that comes with acculturation and civilization uh being refined meant having some sort of or or more importantly than being refined that's for the gentleman being um being useful being someone who could contribute to the public debate someone who could be uh administer a state apparatus uh or work with a reform organization i mean what, what 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 they prided out more than ever and always have is their own virtue. And they sought to affirm their virtue by solving problems that were caused by the system they supported, which meant that their solutions would always exacerbate the problem. And two great examples that White talks about here are Indian policy and prohibition temperance as it was called back. Then. Uh, and he talks about how the allotment system, which was the single, like most brutal assault on traditional native American folk ways that was ever done out within the confines of like admin, like the administrative state and the legal process as opposed to just, you know, uh, genocide, uh, was a reform move. Yes, of course, it was allowed to happen and encouraged because it meant land would be allocated to hungry white settlers. But for the people who pushed it, they saw a future where Native Americans, Indians, would be physically extinguished from North America if they kept their ways. Carlisle, the founder of the Carlisle Indian School, famously said, kill the Indian, save the man. And for those guys, as cynical as it might have been, and as, as I said, it was only allowed to become a uh, a policy because it helped uh, it, it helped the interests of those who wanted to uh, exploit native, native lands, it did point to a real conflict, which was the Native way of life was incompatible with turning America into the rationalized checkerboard of uh, private property, that we were going about doing. And so the solution for a, a good-hearted Christian Indian reformer is, well, make them have farms. Make them settle down. Make them farm and be like us. And then they can live as citizens, and we don't have to worry about them getting wounded kneed anytime they decide to start dancing. And in the narrow parameters where the choice is extinguishment versus assimilation, assimilation is the more refined, is the more civilized, response, even though it is in its own way genocidal. But that's because it could not, and and its inaction destroyed many Native American communities. That is the end result of reform within a system where the reformers are not part of a broader uh, press against capital, but are within it trying to direct it. It will only compound all the contradictions that are that are they're responding to. And prohibition, uh, temperance, is a similar thing. These middle-class uh, Victorian evangelicals were horrified by the drunken uh, rabble of the cities, who uh, the Irish, Germans, and uh, Catholics, or the uh, Irish Catholics, Irish Germans, who would just get shit-faced all day when they weren't working. You know, 20 hours a week or 20 hours or 12 hours a day. And instead of recognizing that the rise of saloons and the rise of drinking was a direct response uh, to being hyper-exploited, uh, which was an untouchable assumption, that to, 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 to work to change that would be to violate sank- sacred concepts of free enterprise and private contract. No, you just uh, pass laws so that they can't drink. Irish Germans, like uh, Tom Hagen. Uh, and... There's a example that White gives of uh, the reformers who are able to win temperance in um, Iowa, but then with a with a coalition of you know the more uh, the more refined Catholic elements and the middle class Protestants, but then immediately as as soon as, soon as uh, it was enacted in, enacted, lost their coalition's control because the the, immigra- the immigrants didn't they wanted to drink. And the response from those middle-class reformers was to say, actually, you know what? The problem isn't alcohol. It's the fucking Catholics. It's these fucking immigrants. They're not, they're not acting like we said they should. Well, they can't act the way they should. Should You act the way you are because you were cradled in the bosom of the Lincolnite uh, freeholder America. You got in. You were there. They can't act like you. But then instead of recognizing that, because recognizing that would recognize the inherent contradictions within the system that you're supporting, you have to find a solution that only exacerbates the problem. And the thing that hampered all levels of reform everywhere, uh, anti-monopoly, soft money, temperance, all of which had... Virtue within them, even the temperance movement was a genuine attempt to reduce things like domestic violence at every level they were undermined by uh the fact that there were there was some segment of the population who, that was uh opposed for one reason or another to that reform, and that would cause the reformers committed as they were to the system as such to decide to condemn them as demographically and divide. Within. and that has been, that's been the story of America more than anything is that our, our polyglot nature has meant that at every crucial moment of conflict there has been more that breaks up the labor half the labor side of, of the equation than brings them together. And now and what is all this for? What is all this to defend? What are all these re- reform uh, pretzels? What is Andrew Carnegie going, oh, we're going to buy, we're going to give everybody libraries and they can go read and not, and not be, sorry, we shot the hell out of all of uh, your, your family members and are making them work 12 hours a day. But here, go read a fucking book. Uh, what, what, um, what is this system producing? Culturally, it's producing mass entertainment and mass amusements that are horrifying the middle classes but are the only thing available to poor people. I mean, they literally want these people to have middle class tastes when they don't have the money of the middle class. They think that middle class means something other than, at that point, other than fucking income in a social relationship. They think that it's it's a state of mind that they need to impart. And if you can't take it, then you need to be kicked out of the country, basically. Um, So it creates a culture that they hate, even though it's, being generated by the logic of capitalism that they endorse uh it's creating alcoholism it's making people smaller and more sickly and what is it making economically and i want to talk about i want to read a little bit and talk a bit about what i was saying my favorite part of the book so far white's description of the political economy of the cattle drive I'm going to read a, a, a section here that will be relatively long, but I think it's perfect because it describes so... It, the description of the economy of, of cattle investments in the Old West uh, and the cattle drives from Texas into, into, into the, to the rail hubs um, is essentially the same model that you find at every juncture of uh, finance capital and the physical economy in America or any kind of economy in American history. Let me see if I can find it here. So let me just start by saying uh, the whole reason that the cattle drive happened, all those steers going up through to Abilene, was because Texas Longhorn cattle carried a tick that made them uh, dangerous to be around other types of animal because they had a uh, a fever that from the tick that they mostly became immune to as 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 uh, calves, but which if the tick got to a different cow that hadn't had that would make the the cow sick, perhaps kill it. So. St- Longhorns could not be brought to local rail hubs and shipped with other cattle, like domestic breeds that people brought to Texas. They couldn't uh, take them to local railheads because they were not allowed with the other cows. So they would have to go uh, basically around to isolated uh, railheads that were sitting there doing nothing because. One of the marks of the railroad, infrastructure, uh, uh, the railroad investment of the post-Civil War era is that a lot of it went towards building railroads that never saw much action and never got much uh, traffic because they were all speculative. White points out, the railroads went first. In most of the West, it was not people showed up uh, as uh, settlers that said, oh, here's the railroad. The railroad went first. The railroad and the army went first, and then people followed. Now, in a lot of places, they didn't fall They didn't. Ve- not, not many. Not very many of them followed because oh, we can't actually grow anything here. So you had a lot of just fucking uh, rail uh, heads just sitting empty, and so that's a place you could take a shit ton of diseased longhorns to take to the the east, and so they drove these fuckers uh, up into the uh, into Kansas and, and even into the Dakotas. Uh... And the thing that funded them, this was like the people who were, this was the single most sort of uh, rationalized, financialized and and industrial uh, elements of the Western economy, which is what makes it so ironic that the cowboy mythos goes around it. Cowboys were not sodbusters. Cowboys were not independent uh, uh, settlers out on the plains, huddling in their cabin against Indian attack. They were employees. They were workers. They were hired by big firms to prove those fucking cattle. So, uh, and of course, the irony of ironies is that they had to kill all the buffaloes to fill this area with these fucking cows, which many of them were uh, miserable. Mistreated, died, starved in places that the buffaloes had thrived for millennia, uh, because because they were domesticated and you could move them and you could ship them and you could turn it into profit. You don't have to go up to one buffalo, shoot it, and eat it for a year. Texas cat. I'm going to read this here. Texas cattle gave an ini. This is page 595. If anyone wants to follow along, Texas cattle gave an initial boost of to beef consumption. Beef from Longhorns was tough, but it was cheap. The grass on the public lands, and for that matter, railroad land, was free. Always desperate for things to carry, the railroads touted the Great Plains as a place where cattle effectively cared for themselves. It spawned a separate genre of boosterism, pretty much summed up by the title of General James S. Brisbane's Beef Bonanza, or How to Get Rich on the Plains. Great name for a book, by the way. In the late 1870s and the early 1880s, cattle raising spread steadily north. I have to say, he should have just stuck with... um, He should have just stuck with beef bonanza. You don't need the ore there. Beef bonanza is so much fun. Uh, Okay. By the 1880s, cattle companies and corporations created by Eastern and British investors dominated the Western Ranges. Uh, And then he talks a little bit about how... uh, Teddy Roosevelt went out east, or went out to the Dakotas to play cowboy, and it was all made up. Uh, British and Scottish investors alone pumped $34 million worth of capital, declared book value, into the Western livestock industry in the United States during the last quarter of the 19th century. What attracted investors was an industry heavily subsidized by the federal government, a set of economic calculations too good to be true, and promises made by promoters that amounted to a little more than a modern Ponzi scheme. John Clay was a Scotsman who remembered much of his adult life in the cattle and who spent much of his adult life in the cattle business it was clay remembered a crude business at the beginning and it remained so until the end the subsidies as with the railroads were enormous the federal government had opened up the public domain by evicting indians whom roosevelt despised and whose rever- removal he saw as both inevitable and commendable uh The federal government provided Roosevelt and other cattlemen with free land, and nature provided the grass and water that the cattle consumed. The federal government and the state subsidized the railroads that promoted cattle raising and hauled cattle to market. For all practical purposes, the producer in this industry was the product itself, for cows and steers got precious little help from humans in surviving on the Great Plains. Their owners branded them, rathered them with, when ready for shipping, and sent them off to market. A fairly simple set of calculations made profits seem inevitable. Cattlemen calculated the price of maintaining a steer at between 75 cents and $1.25 a year. When Stockman reported they could sell a four-year-old Wyoming steer for between $25 and $45, with costs, exclusive of capital and transportation, being between $3 and $6 a steer, how could they lose? If corporate reports were to be believed, always a dangerous thing to do in the Gilded Age, invest, and not, I'd say, also now. Hashtag Elon Musk. Hashtag, how is that fucking company still around? Hashtag, how do you not think that this is a gigantic bubble that is going to collapse on all of us? Tesla is one of the biggest, it's like Enron on freaking crack, folks, okay? Anyway, investors were not losing. Anglo-American cattle corporations produced dividends of 15 to 30% between 1881 and 1883. The dividends, as it turned out, actually came from new investments and loans, not profit from cattle. The corporations actually had little idea how many head they owned because actual cattle are hard to find during roundups. So to estimate their herds, cattle companies created a book count. Book count cattle existed only in the ledger. In an age that was perfecting actuarial tables and life insurance policies, there was nothing remarkable about making educated guesses based on the average survival and reproduction of large numbers of cattle. But men seeking investors do not make good actuaries. In the book counts, the West was a land of perpetual spring and toothless wolves. Real cattle died, had accidents, and failed to calve. Book cattle, book count cattle reproduced at a dependable annual rate, usually 70%. Book count calves matured and begat more book count calves. Western cattle corporations borrowed on their book count cattle, which were immune to the vagaries of Western life. As a Cheyenne saloon keeper told a group of disconsolate cattlemen drinking at his bar while a blizzard raged outside, Cheer up, boys. Whatever happens, the books won't freeze. Now, of course, that whole thing eventually collapsed, but it was uh everybody was bailed out you either lost or if you knew the right people you got bailed out and that for that right there that model that is the model of the american economy since uh essentially its inception but certainly since the civil war and it's the same thing as the railroads the railroads operated on the exact same way the railroads thrived on continued investment and gave people gave uh investors dividends to induce further investment those dividends not coming from the profits from often unprofitable railroads that have been speculatively laid out for free because the government just gave them fucking money and capital to do it, uh, but from more loans and investors. How much? How much? How much freight are you actually moving? How many? How many uh, people are paying you to fucking travel on your rails? Or how, how much uh, wheat is going on it? That doesn't matter. Look at these returns. How many cattle are you actually moving to fucking Abilene? It doesn't matter. We have them right here. And what and all of these have in common is that you have a things that are common necessities like transportation infrastructure, like agricultural production, that are uh, established through direct government intervention, clearing the land, uh, 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 providing in a real sense the capital. And then private actors, whose proximity to the, play, to the uh, interaction to the transaction is luck in the sense that it is personal relationships. It's not fucking wisdom and vision and genius, are then able to essentially act as, as, as ticks, uh, creating fake propaganda and, uh, f- and fraudulent book uh, keeping. To keep a flow of investor money in as long as they can. Paying themselves as much as possible until the thing falls apart. That's the fucking housing crisis. That's Netflix. Netflix's numbers, oh, 70 million people watch The King's Gambit. That's just, that's like the fucking cattle. That's exactly like, oh, I've got 500 head of cattle headed to Abilene. Look at this, look at these notes. Look at the ledger. so so social forces produce uh, industries and then are then and then the uh, the the product of them is is kept and pr- privatized because at the end of the day they don't trust us with it and nor should they and of course they say the reason you can't trust people with it because they're a bunch of uncultured swine who will spend it all on booze. Some of them are, but the one thing that is definitely sure is that if there is worker control of their actual, like the capital they work with, as opposed to just uh, a, a wage, the the superfluidity of the capitalist becomes very, very quickly and very readily apparent, and that is the last thing any of these people want. And one of the signs that um, the working class uprisings that you saw with the uh, the 77 strikes, with the Haymarket and the 8-Hour Day movement and Homestead were uh, being met with enough brutality, enough unified violence, and enough resistance at the highest levels of both parties. Because as much as you have this efflorescence of uh, anti monopolists in both parties, and he talks about the budding populist party emerging out of Kansas, and moving through the country, and, and challenging Republicans and Democrats in the North and South. Um, by the late 1880s, the demands of labor, symbolized by the American Federation of Labor and Samuel Gompers, that had emerged as sort of an umbrella organization of, of the emerging labor unions, moved away from demands for control of workplaces and towards Wages towards consumption. Okay, we cannot be owners of the means of production because you will kill us if we try to do that, and we're too sep- we're too um, we're not unified enough to fight you and win. What we can do is, especially since it's good for the damn economy, is get more of the surplus in the form of wages, which we can then spend at our discretion. We can become consumers, and that's what they became. That's what they are now. And that is why so much of the hair splitting about who counts as working class is incredibly tedious and pointless. And honestly, I think it's mostly about people uh, just looking to sanctify themselves morally. Like, I think a lot of people who, who, who go to college to learn about things like class oppression filter a lot of the stuff through a middle-class morality. And they th- hear working class and they think good, and they think anything else is, oh, those are the bad exploiters. And so you have all these people insisting, I'm working class. Like, well, maybe... Maybe in terms of your, your relationships to means of production. But the reason that that was supposed to matter in the Marxist conception is that people in those relationships generated social relationships with each other and generated class consciousness out of that. We're in a situation where we have 330 million consumers. There's, nobody has a class character. And so seeing people argue about it is very baffling unless you realize, oh, they're just trying to have someone validate that they're good people. Yeah, I saw that Hispanics and, and uh, young people believe in QAnon the most, and of course they do because they have gr- they have not invested in any of the bullshit that we tell ourselves about this country. What I mean by that is, I mean like that these institutions have like a, sac- a a sacredness to them in themselves. Like a lot of the Q people, they imagine that there is you know some America, some ideal America that they're representing, but the actual institutions of government and media. Uh, to them are this disgusting corruption of that. And that is a reasonable thing to think. If you're just observing the world, you turn on the TV and there are all of the major tech companies and every awful giant corporation telling you that Donald Trump is a bad man and he has to be stopped and he's not American and stuff. Oh, and by the way, here's uh, you're not getting anything. Uh, you're, you are You are left to the devices of the market. Good luck in the middle of a pandemic. There's nothing for you. But you're supposed to care about this stuff and you're supposed to be concerned about America's democracy as though it has ever done anything for you. As though it has ever done anything for you. I think QAnon started with boomers. You saw that in the early stuff, but it's a different thing now. I don't think it's the same thing. I think that those first generation of of, of popularizers were Facebook grandmas, but once it became viral, once it became just a shortcut for the system is filled with criminal lizard pedophiles, which is a a sensational narrative hook for any young person who's disengaged from politics, but is aware that the world they live in is fucked. And also... That it's a good way to get paid. Like, that's the other thing, is that the 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 original, like, QAnon uh, conceptions and, and, like, the original uh, proofing and stuff, I think, was done by a bunch of housebound old people. But once it hit TikTok, once it hit social, like, uh, young people media, it could be something that could be turned into a a hustle. And all of us are looking for a hustle. Every one of us, because that's the only escape route. If you you have the money... Unless you are part of, unless you're sitting on some of that fucking, uh, hoarded cash from the mid-century bonanza, if you are, even the child, like, not, and, and I'm not saying working class, like, maybe not a, a, a boat ownership dealer, but the boat ownership dealer's, like, second son, the boat ownership dealer's second son, especially since that boat ownership probably doesn't make as much money as it used to, and it's probably got a bunch of fucking, uh, leveraging. You're, you're not getting anything. Nobody is getting anything. And no jobs have any kind of promise of stability or, or, or certainly stability at all, let alone the kind of creative um, satisfaction that the knowledge economy was supposed to provide to labor for people who went to school and got and got and, and learned. There's nothing. There's, there's fucking, uh, there's gig economy uh, gerbil work. Unless. You can monetize your own self somehow, like I have. I am, I am a perfect example. And like the, the, the Bernie thing was essentially a Q-esque phenomenon in that sense, in that it provided a common vocabulary for alienated people online to talk with, and then to talk to each other, and then to promote each other. And Q is the same thing. I'm not hammered. This is my first beer. Uh, Let's see if there's anything else I wanted to talk about from this section. Uh, I did like the detail where he points out that when Teddy Roosevelt went out to Dakota after his wife and his mom died on the same day in his house, uh, that he bought a gold-mounted Bowie knife from Tiffany & Company. Trump, TR really was a Trump type in that he was a tough guy who who people thought was a tough guy, but who was actually a fancy lad. But the difference between the late 19th century and the early 21st is the difference between having to actually do something to think of yourself as a tough guy and just telling everybody that you're a tough guy that does the work. Wisconsinites are built differently. Oh, I wanted to uh, quote this little ditty that uh, nativists in Massachusetts said. The Irish and the Dutch, they don't amount to much, for the mix have their whiskey and the Germans guzzle the beer, and all we Americans wish they had never come here. I have to say, not very catchy. Pretty bad. It's a reason that those people did not really make any culture. The middle-class Protestant-American... Beef with the the Catholic urban immigrants was that they didn't have culture, but they were the only ones who had culture. Like that American middle brow was nothing. Uh, oh yes, I wanted to bring up uh, good old Frederick Taylor, the founder of Taylorism and scientific management of of uh, of uh, work movements, who who brought mechanism, mechanization to the actual act of performing work, human mechanization. Uh, people probably know a little bit about Taylor, but I think what's most interesting about him is that he was a laborer. He was a foreman basically. And he essentially made his own job. He created the idea of being a, um, of being a, um, mechanical engineer out of nothing he just bullshitted it and that's how when we talk about the formation of you know the bureaucratic class that interposes itself between you know the purely exploited worker and the and the capitalist uh a lot of them are you know these men of letters like uh like howell that uh white talks about but some of them are eager working class strivers who uh just hustle their way to bluffing people into thinking that they have a certain certain expertise. And as long as that expertise can be profitably sold to capital, it will have value. And Taylor, no matter how spotty and non-existent the scientific basis for any of his theories was, he was able, like Edison and other people, he was able to sell himself to capitalists because he was selling them something they wanted to hear. And he was a guy who had to, he got to go from the, the factory floor to a nice office because, essentially, he, he made his own job with bullshit. And that was a big part of building that middle strata. Okay. Uh, they talk a little bit about the... I want to talk a little bit about the Knights of Labor. Uh, So the Knights of Labor were like the first, they were the before the AFL, they were the first attempt to create an umbrella organization for workers that would be able to coordinate across geography and across industries. And they were not modeled on labor unions, really. They were modeled on, um, originally, the Knights of Labor were modeled on uh, the fraternal orders, like the Freemasons and the Oddfellows that were blowing up in America to fill in the gap of that social connection that, you know, they didn't have here and then a lot of them had had in Europe. And the sons of the Knights of Labor were were a explicitly working class uh fraternal order that over time was able to do things like collect money for strike funds and coordinate action and and move against workers and assert workers uh prerogatives. But it was this jerry-rigged system uh and it was it's Apogee and then Fall came at the same time, which is that it precipitated the great uh, 1885 railroad strikes, and then it was, uh, once those were broken, it sort of was on a slow decline and eventually was supplanted by the AFL. Good old Samuel Gompers. Samuel Gompers. We love to hear about the Samuel Gompers. One of those names I remember writing down in my book in like ninth grade history. There's, I thought about this a while ago that there are certain things that I just get stuck in my head from learning American history never and because you know you mostly you don't learn what's going on or why you just learn discrete events that you're supposed to memorize. It's the worst way to teach the subject and it's the reason most people hate history and, the, and I don't think anybody in power is unhappy with that turn of events. But I remember Samuel Gompers, Zimmerman Telegram. Uh, the a- XYZ Affair. Wilmot Proviso, absolutely. The Gadsden Purchase. It's another one. Teapot Dome. Teapot Dome is so funny. Teapot Dome is hilarious. The 1920s were an incredibly important period in American history. I mean, it set the stage for a... a catastrophic economic collapse and then the the reforging of a new political economy out of the wreckage of it. It had the prohibition, it had the rise of gangsters, that all this stuff. The only thing you learn about from the political strata of that era is the some fucking assholes siphoning some oil out of a hole in the ground. That's it. Which in like the in the in the panoply of, of, of corruption, one of a very low tier thing. I mean like I hate talking about like Trump as as you know, some horrible crook, because they're all crooks, but Trump's personal corruption dwarfs anything like that, and yet teapot dome. Because you gotta gotta talk about something, right? And you can't talk about any of the actual stuff going on, like the fact that the Klan took over half the country and ran like the state of Indiana, for example. Seward's Folly is a good one. Seward's Folly is a good one. The Cross of Gold speech. William Jennings Bryan. But if you're anything like me and you went to public school, when you learned history, it was just a collection of these things that you just had to remember. Why any of them happened, what, any, what connection any of them had to each other, it was all vague to non-existent. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, absolutely. Oh, you got to talk about Jonathan Edwards. If you have a milkshake, and I have a milkshake, And I have a long straw. Here it is. I go across the room into your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. Still my favorite scene in movie history. I drink it up. I drink the blood of lamb from Bandy's track. All right, I'm going to see if there's anything else I want to talk about here. Uh... Yeah, that's pretty much it. So for the next, next Wednesday, we're going to finish it. Next Wednesday, we're going to read part three, which is the last part. We're going to go through, presumably, the Pullman strike, the second Cleveland administration... Uh, and the fact that Cleveland let another economic collapse happen and did nothing. The Democrat broke the employment strike and then refused to provide any uh, uh, aid to suffering people because at that point, it's baffling. It's amazing, and it reminds you. It's not baffling really. It, it, it's it's just it shows how over time the party system exists essentially to mask the confluence of interests at the top of both parties. And they were divided sectionally for a good chunk of America's history. As after the Civil War, the divide was regional. It was not ideological. The parties had basically the same structure in many ways, regardless of the fact they had different demographics of support. At the base, you had a variety of people, including, a—I a, 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 would say, a by this period in time, I would say the, the base of both parties is composed of people who are in favor of uh anti-monopoly action, uh soft money to increase the, the, the currency supply and, and uh increase uh and help the position of debtors. Uh but at the top were hard money men maybe the only real difference the only idea, the only actual issue difference between the two besides of course uh the administration of voting in the south was um was tariff was the fucking tariff was industrial policy uh but in both cases the preference for one or the other was not driven from the bottom up it was driven by the interests of the top which at that time were still divergent because of the regional differences because all that finance capital and specifically all of that industrial capital that needed the tariff to maintain uh, to be to protect it from foreign uh, competition was in the north. I find that I'm always learning new stuff like I obviously am fairly familiar with this period of time but rereading reading this book a lot of things pop up like because people are always going to find interesting and and fun uh, and insightful juxtapositions that you wouldn't otherwise know, even if you have a, a general understanding. Also, you get great names. Like one in this section, there's a discussion of a, a corrupt Indian agent, which is of course uh, a redundancy named Valentine McGillicuddy, wonderful 19th century name. And what's not, and That reminds me. Of one more, the last thing I want to say about this section and the book and that era, reminding me of the Indian agent thing, is the fee-for-service model of public uh, administration. The thing about the United States after the Civil War is that it had theoretically a vast amount of power over the continent, a huge amount of land that it had theoretically dominance over. But its administrative capacity to carry out that authority was limited by its its uh, undeveloped infrastructure over such a large-sized country. And part of that was technological. We, we just didn't have the ability to really coordinate. And so what filled the gap was self-interest in the form of fee-based services. If you were a cop, if you were a judge, if you were an uh, uh, Indian agent, if you, were, if you had any role within the government as a... Uh, as a regulator or, or official, you were not necessarily paid a salary so much as you were paid uh, fees for the people who you work for, which, of course, that goes against the idea of a public service, right? Because uh, you know, it should be provided for free, but that would not have allowed for the motivation factor. That wouldn't have not gotten people to do the work. You've got a bunch of uh, if you've got a bunch of people fleeing the authorities, for example, into Indian country from Missouri, like in uh, True Grit. Nobody's going to go and get them unless they know it's going to be worth their while. And so you got to have bounties. And that extent, that logic extended throughout all of the administration for everything. Uh, and that, plus the spoil system, was the basis for like the wildly corrupt nature of public administration. Uh, but the thing about the spoil system, and as I pointed this out last week, which we, we're told, if we learn at all about it in history, as this was a corrupt uh non-democratic structure and that civil service reform eventually like uh cleaned it up. Uh in reality there the, the um the spoil system uh allowed the, the the parties to assert some independence from capital because they had independent funding sources because the deal with the spoil system was Say you're like a bartender or a ward healer or a popular guy in the neighborhood, you get a bunch of people to vote for the Democrat or the Republican. you're awarded with like a sanitation job or marshal or something like that you If you get a salary or fees, you give a percentage of it to the party so it's personally corrupt like you'd had to give money to the guy the your patron, but also it built the party capacities. Because, and that was necessary, because the stupid constitution, by assuming that parties couldn't exist, ended up creating a vacuum for administration of elections that ended up having to be filled by the political parties, and meant that political parties ended up being a load-bearing member of a a load-bearing element of a structure that was designed not to include them at all. Wild. And what? of the consequences of getting rid of fee-for-service and specifically getting rid of the, the spoils kickback system is that the parties became even more dependent on large money donations from capital. Because who the hell else has the money to give a fucking political party? All right. So, let's do the last part for next week. Oh yes, and also he talks, like I said last week, Henry George ran for mayor of New York against Teddy Roosevelt, uh, and he talks about that in this section, and it was a three-way race between a liberal Democrat who was running uh, with Tammany support, even though he was not a Tammany man, uh, Teddy Roosevelt running as a Republican, but as a a sort of quasi-populist Republican, and Henry George running on a labor ticket. And the and the working class Irish who were the Tammany base, they they liked what they heard from George. And the way that Tammany was able to win that election was by replacing the votes they lost to George with middle and middle class Republican votes. Because because they recognized the threat where they saw it, and that's the thing about Tammany and the urban machines is that yes, they were more democratic than the bureaucratic state that would come later, certainly, but they were still uh, at the they were still structures that served capital, and that got a better deal for their uh, constituents, their clients than the raw market would have but that when push came to shove would coordinate with capital to prevent a real challenge to emerge to its prerogatives. So they impeached him, huh? John Morrissey. Yeah, I I did a, a dollop episode. I guess not a dollop episode about John Morrissey fighting Bill the Butcher pretty fun third party when yeah that's a good question (laughs) i don't know i mean honestly it might not even be a party we might be beyond that by the time it gets organized but uh depending on the whatever i don't know i don't know man but it's it's at some point presumably there would be a party expression of of challenge to this this dead conflict between neoliberal, inclusive capitalism, and white nationalist, petty-bouge temper tantrum. Because they will only reinforce each other. And that, to me more than anything, is why I have no obligation to, to su- supply any kind of rhetorical support for uh, a campaign to raise the alarm and to demand uh, a, a, a defensive line supporting every hysterical argument about from Democrats because none of it is going to go, you're saying, well, we got to do it. We have to fend off the fascist threat. Well, when will that ever happen? It'll never go away. The fucking de- Republican base isn't going to change their mind. They're always going to be there. And the only response for the Democrats will be hysterical clapping and punitive police state measures because they sure as shit have no interest in draining the swamp by making life in this country any less miserable for anybody who lives in it. Biden today says we're not going to do a big uh, recon- we're not going to do a big reconciliation stimulus. We're going to go through the regular channels and work with the Republicans. And maybe in the end they won't do that, but it's the same scam. It's the exact same scam. These guys are a threat to democracy. These guys are existential enemies of the republic. Also, though, they are the ones who get to dictate domestic policy. And you will have to support that, even as it makes everything worse, even as it creates more yahoos, more people willing to commit violence on behalf of their fucking orange god emperor, more people uh, violently alienated from society, willing to carry, I mean, it's not, people are worried about QAnon violence, and that's going to be a thing, stochastic political violence is going to be just a feature of politics, but as I said, crime in general is up and going to keep going up, because this shit is falling apart. The social coherence is collapsing to the degree there ever was any because it was all held together by plenty. It was all held together by the promise of more. That's what kept people together even though we never melded it to, into an actual uh, national identity. And the answer to all of these is going to, the only answer that liberalism can give is suppression. Just like those, it's it's the exact same thing as those reformist evangelicals trying to break up the Indian reservations into allotments it's like we're, we're caught in this death spiral global capital is un, un, unleashed uh the only place for profit is at the expense of labor every job has to be uh proletarianized every person has to be proletarianized if they don't have access to uh, enough capital and um uh, you can either learn to code uh, or be ha- or just if you can't then you just have to take it you have to take it and remember that this is a good country, and there's a lot of shows on Netflix you can watch, and you know, that's only 10 bucks a month. That Those are your choices. And if you don't like it, the answer is going to be the fucking stick. And there's going to be a lot of leftists, a lot of leftists, whatever that fucking means, who are going to be cheering along the entire time because we have to stand strong together. Even though... It will be the policy of this fucking party, these Democrats in power, that will make everything that these people are terrified of worse. I will never be held accountable. How dare you even suggest how dare you even suggest that I will be held accountable? I mean, these people are, how is it, like I, the thing I was supposed to have been canceled for where I said that the, the fucking capital is not some sacred institution. It's a goddamn, uh, it's a, it's Baphomet's uh, ritual altar place. Um, that's bad because it like lets them off the hook for the riot. How, how at this moment in time, with these democratic institutions showing themselves every day to be frauds, showing us every day that, yeah, in a class society, democracy is impossible. There is no such thing as democracy in a class society. Because one class has the fucking power, and they're going to exercise it. And your ability to, to influence them will always be channeled and, uh, and reduced and dissipate it, and you might get you might get a little more pie now, but eventually you will be put through the fucking chutes into the goddamn slaughterhouse, if that's what the ledger says to do. And in this moment, we're supposed to be re-sanctifying this hollow ritual with meaning that it does not deserve. Who does that benefit? Sure shit doesn't benefit anybody but the people in the political class who are trying to keep this fucking charade going as long as they can. Like, the Democrats think that they have the whip hand now, at least in terms of public opinion. They think that those, they think, and, wh- and this is the important thing, they have no way of knowing because they're caught in the fucking bubble just like everybody is. Like, they can make fun of Q people for being delusional, but I'm sorry, if you're a Democrat, you're as delusional. You live as much in a filtered reality that does not tell you anything about the average sentiment or, um, like, will to act in any way of the mass of the American people. And so I watched that debate, and everyone's saying America, the American people are horrified, and they what happens? Like, you hope that's true. How do you know though? You're just going to bluff it and hope that enough winging the alarm and waving the bloody shirt will. Discipline these people, but they're the thing is, uh, all they want to do, all they want to do that with, all they want to do with that whip hand, it's not push policies, it's not oh here we got them on the ropes, we're actually going to institute Medicare for all, no, it's we got them on the ropes, we're going to reaffirm uh, uh, the America's trust in our sacred democratic institutions and then launch a uh, domestic drone program to combat combat terrorism. I think you're ignoring the fact that some lawmakers were explicitly targeted and probably would have been executed if the Bob was more lucky. This isn't funny. I mean, it's funny. I'm sorry. all of this is funny. If you don't think it's funny, then log, then you should not be on the internet. My God. Uh, but like, was it terrifying for the people in it? Yes, what's really weird to me is people who insist that like I have an, I have a, I have we all have some sort of um, duty to affirm like the lived experience and emotional response of members of Congress. like their posters, like their other posters. There are other, like online friends of ours who are trying to validate. They're members of Congress. They have more in common with each other. They have more in common with Kevin McCarthy and Lloyd Gohmert than they do with us. The Q people as the new anti-masonic party. That's a good. That's not a bad comparison actually, because the anti-masonic party was a similar impulse. It was people looking around at the, at the, at the bounty of, of, uh, of the American, of of the Virgin America, finding uh, roadblocks to the advancement that they thought that they would have in it and decided that it's, it's, uh, that that couldn't be in this land of plenty, that that couldn't be in America with its constitution and its, and its founding heroes. It must be in this secret bunch of uh, people hanging around and wearing aprons and, who knows what, in their secret societies. They even had, like, a uh, their own, um, like, Epstein case, their own sort of, whoa, or I guess Seth Rich would be better, that there was a murder, there was a famous murder of a former Mason who was threatening to publish a book exposing Masonic secrets in northern New York, which helped spark the Anti-Masonic Party coming into being. And the Anti-Masonic Party was part of that, uh, drive towards it was a, it was a middle class movement much like the know nothings ended up being uh in in the upper upper north of the country of, of the united uh, uh of the northern tier uh it started in upstate new york but uh i believe there were eventually anti masonic congressmen elected in maryland uh, uh so like up through the through the mid atlantic region uh but not the deep south uh and It looked at horror at the Jacksonian democracy and the slave power that uh, that dictated it, but could not find any uh, could not put any faith in the Whigs as an opposition to it because they was filled with masons. And QAnon is a similar thing. When you're just trying to make sense of this world and you're looking for bad guys, they're everywhere in both parties. Now it takes a certain sort of American brain poisoning and uh, essentially mental, like, suffocation to decide that Donald Trump is the person who's going to defeat them. But, by the same token, why wouldn't it be? Like, like the idea of a, uh, of of a lone hero stalking the halls of injustice is, is an American archetype. And, it's built into the way we think of the presidency. Like, you can go, why do these people believe in Donald Trump? And of course, he's Donald fucking Trump. But he's also the president. And we have decided that the president uh, embodies something, as opposed to just essentially being a vessel for interests far beyond his personal ones. And that their their uh, adherence to the job is predicated on the understanding that they will carry out those will, that will, and that their like self actualization of will to power is more a matter of embodying the moment and embodying the interests and powers and uh constituencies of the moment than of shaping anything but that's certainly not how we think of them like how could we put that much emotion behind it how could we invest so much of our sense of ourselves as democratic participants in it if that's all the presidency was the presidency has to be some guy with a fucking anime sword who can cut through the gordian knot of injustice if he's not why do we care so much Oh, shit, it's pretty late. Damn, I went fa- I went long. All right, uh, well, we'll see what happens next, won't we? Next week, for example, we'll have all this. And uh, also, by the way, 20,000 troops in the capital, so my prediction is still solid that it will be a orderly, if tense, transition of power, uh, and then you're going to start seeing some people pop off And then you're going to start seeing the, the, the fist of the state come to smack Whitey in the face and tell him, no, 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 you thought it was one way, but it's the other way.